Okay. Yeah, attendees are jumping on, right? So. Well, hey, I'll just start talking. This is Rick Ormsby here. You can probably see my uh, uh, ugly mug and shiny head. I'm kind of easy to, to see from a, from a long distance. And, and you've got uh, Mike James here, obviously, and Reed Melillo, too. Say hi, guys. Hey, guys. Afternoon. Yeah, we're excited to be here. It's an honor that you guys have taken the time and chosen to, to do this with us. And, uh, and we'll just kind of hang out for a little bit. It's, it's from it's central time here. It's, it's, it's about two. So maybe we'll wait just a couple of minutes. In the meantime, I guess, you know, uh, this, this is the, this is going to be, this is our second webinar that Unbridled Capital has done. The first one we did was on estate planning about three weeks ago and it went really well. This one is obviously about COVID-19 and the impact on the M&A market going forward and in the current environment. Wanted to make it both a discussion about businesses, but also a discussion about real estate too. And so uh, we'll do that. And then we've got a third uh, one coming up in about two weeks, which I think you'll find interesting, which is going to be on business interruption insurance. And I've been speaking with a Harvard trained national expert in the area who has tons of expertise and experience here. And I think, and he thinks that this is the next big shoe to drop once franchisees get past the P3 lending fiasco that's been going on over the last couple of weeks. Because as you know, a lot of these business interruption insurance uh, policies are going to immediately decline and deny. And uh, there's going to be a lot of litigation. Think back to Katrina and all the, you know, and all the litigation that happened on the Gulf Coast because of the hurricanes. So that's going to be coming in a couple of weeks. And if you want to see or get attached to that, all you got to do is go to Unbridled Capital's website, unbridledcapital.com, and you'll see a little, you know, orange or yellow button up at the top. So uh, you can hit on that and you can join in and, uh, and, and, and get the information. So, uh, and then get subscribed to our email list and such. Okay, so, so uh, maybe we'll just give it another minute or two. Attendees are still trickling in. Pretty cool, Mike, Reed. I mean, a lot of people here, and I imagine from all over the country. I mean, I'm in Kentucky. Uh, you know, actually at the moment I'm not, but I'm usually in Kentucky, and these gentlemen are in California, so we've got people all over the country. What do you think? Yeah, it's, it's, it's awesome to see. I know I've, I've had a lot of texts of, of watching my phone of, of people that we know getting on, so it's exciting. We're, we're, we couldn't be happier to be a, a partner of Unbridled, and this – it's a crazy time, and the more information you can get, the, the better. It's really, it, it's important to, to hear from as many professionals as you can, and I, I'm, I'm continually learning in the same capacity, so very excited to be here today. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. That's awesome. Well, I'll go ahead, I guess, and, and, and maybe start. I mean, the numbers are still trickling in, but, but I guess it's probably as good a time as any to start. We'll try to be respectful and keep this to an hour. The goal is going to be 45 to 50 minutes and then some Q&A at the end. So and you, if you look at the webinar chat at the bottom, you are able if you are using the functions. And, and why aren't we all figuring this Zoom thing out, but you're able to send, in, to, to send questions and commentary to us, the panelists personally, it won't go to everybody. And we'll monitor and keep an eyeball on it so that if you have a question, we may or may not get to it. Please also know that at the end of this, we will send you an audio of this webinar and the presentation that we're gonna be giving as well. So, so you'll I have that for your records. And then if you have any questions at all, you're going to know how to get in touch with us. A lot of people on this call know me really well and have, and have been friends of mine and clients of mine for a long time. So if you have any questions at all as we get out off of this call and off this webinar, just please reach out anytime. And same to, to Mike and Reed. I know they'd be happy to help you. So right now I'm going to share my screen and we'll go ahead and, and fire away.
Okay, so here we are. This webinar is the second one that, that Unbridled's done, like I said a little bit earlier, and it's called Franchise M&A and Real Estate Market Conditions in Post-COVID-19. Um, it's been a crazy one out there for, for all of us, I know. And so just to do a quick introduction, most of you know, again know me, I'm Rick Ormsby. I'm the ugly dude from Kentucky on the, on the far left there. I've been doing this for 15 years or so after leaving Young Brands in uh, the early 2000s. I've got a 10-person team in Louisville, Kentucky. We do franchise M&A work. We help people buy and sell and recapitalize their businesses. And I guess the thing I'd be most proud of is just to say that, you know, over the last three years, we've, we've closed about a billion dollars of, of restaurant M&A work, and we've done it at, at, at really almost close to a 95% success rate, which is almost uh, unheard of in our industry. And you're going to see Mike uh, James and Reed Melillo. I maybe just let them just quickly introduce themselves, but these guys are from the California area down in Southern California. And they've been a partner of ours now for a couple of years. We've done a couple hundred million dollars of, of work together and they have done a lot of the financing, uh, buyer financing of the real estate on the transactions we've been involved in. And they've also helped a lot of our clients monetize uh, some of their 1031 proceeds from business sales and to put them in passive investments that are diversified across the country and across different types of, of real estate. So we've been really happy with them. You guys want to just say a quick hello and what you what you are and who you are and that kind of stuff? Yeah, cer certainly. And we've been working together for, I think, six six years directly now. Um, uh, we've been in the business for, for a decade, so not quite as long as Rick, but we have a group based in and if, for those of you that know Los Angeles well, in, in the Westwood area, we have over just over 50 investment professionals, primarily focused on the execution of single tenant net lease transactions um, throughout primarily the United States. We've done some work outside recently, but um, I head up the M&A real estate team. That's my focus within the organization um, in tandem with Reed, who's also on the call. And uh, we, we focus on executing, you know, sale lease back transactions, structured financing, and basically maximizing value in terms for any real estate relations to M&A. Yeah. Yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for the introduction. And uh, hey, by the way, Mike, nice, uh, nice flowers in the back of your, back of your thing. Yeah, my, that's my wife. My wife came over earlier and, and moved a bunch of stuff around. She's like, you can't have this. I have newspapers and books and stuff all behind me. And, she even got me a, a better glass. I was wearing, I had a plastic nice. glass this morning, so. That's nice. I, I tease, you know, I've got a virtual background, so no one can see exactly what I got going on in the background. It's not too bad, right? But all you see is a virtual background, but it gets kind of creepy uh, too. So well, we'll jump right into it. Um, our discussion today is going to really center around a couple of key points. Number one, M&A market conditions right now. Uh, you know, we're going to talk about that. I'll, I'll pick that up and then I'll kind of give you some of my views on what's going to happen post COVID-19 in, in my, from my standpoint and from my bridal standpoint on the M&A side. And then, and then uh, Mike and Reed will jump in with the real estate market conditions currently and then what their views are similarly on the real estate side. And I'll ask them to talk specifically as it pertains to, to uh, you know, retail uh, M&A and, you know, kind of work and, and the business that we're in. We'll do a quick Q&A, Q&A, pardon me. And then we've got a, a couple of questions here that have come in off of email maybe we'll also trickle in too that we'll try to address towards the end of the presentation. So I'm going to presume for a minute that, that uh, you know, there's, there's hundreds, if not, you know, many, many people on this call, and some of them are going to be not restaurant people, right? Maybe more real estate people. So be patient with me as I kind of talk about the current franchise environment, if you're a friend or a client that, that, that already knows a lot of this, but clearly COVID-19 has had 
uh, a lot of challenges, right, has presented a lot of challenges across the retail sector and in the restaurant business particularly. I'd draw your attention over to a directional graph over to the right. It's not meant to be precise or exact, right? It's meant to be directional, and it was really intending to be the first couple of weeks of the COVID-19 crisis. But directionally speaking, you could kind of see what's happened to the different segments within the franchise space. You've seen QSR down roughly 40 you know, casual, fast casual down roughly 50. And then, you know, somewhere in the casual dining realm between mid-scale casual dining and fine dining, we're down somewhere between 70 and 82%. Clearly, we have a lot of the fine dining and casual dining restaurants just, just, just closed. I have a friend who's a Denny's franchisee who just told me anecdotally, he thinks about a third to 40% of the Denny's restaurants, as an example, are actually closed across the country right now. So restaurant revenues are down quite a bit, but within these numbers, you have some signs of positivity and it's not a blanket thing. So we have seen, I mean, I guess we saw uh, Wingstop just report and their sales are huge right now. I think they're plus 9%. Some of our, we have a client who's a, who's a, um, who's a big, uh, a big Sonic franchisee where, you know, we're, we're selling his business. He's got a, a big Sonic business and He's got uh, year-over-year same-store sales since this started that are only down a few percentage points. Uh, and, then, and then we have a, a Papa John's client, a fairly large Papa John's client, who's been showing same-store sales increases in his markets. And if it wasn't for the NCAA tournament not happening, it would have even been stronger. So, uh, so, so we have a little bit of a reordering here. But, but so you have the concepts like Domino's and Papa John's and, and Sonic and, uh, and Wingstop that have really been outperforming in many cases, been doing better than, than they were prior to the crisis. But generally speaking, most of the tier one drive-through QSRs have been down between 15 and 30% since the crisis uh, started. And they have been trending upward. And we'll talk, I'll talk about that in just a little bit. Casual dining and fast casual has been struggling a lot, right? It's not a surprise to see when you just drive down the street in your hometowns to see that a lot of the locations are closed. They don't have a drive-through business. They've been struggling to get off-premise sales. And uh, large permanent closures are expected. A lot of pundits in the market are saying 10 to 20% overall restaurant closures, which is a shocking number. I'm kind of on the light side of that, maybe a little more optimistic. And I think maybe a 10% overall long-term closure of the restaurant business is possible. I'll tell you, I think, you know, uh, over the last couple of years, we've had GDP growth that's been 1% to 2%. You've had same-store sales growth that's been flat. And you've had new, new units, new restaurant units being added to our economy at a 1% to 3% clip. And you can't do that forever without dropping transactions and transactions have been dropping in the industry. And the only way we've been getting sales across the industry is by having pricing at the expense of transactions. And so some of these closures are to be expected and frankly, some of them were needed. Uh, so so, so that, that, that's, that's an element here. A lot of our clients on the phone here have been going to get the P3 stimulus money, which is gonna enable the fran you know, franchisees to be able to, to, uh, to employ and greater staffing levels as hopefully the economy returns in the next 60 to 90 days. And, you know, um, you know, our hope is that a lot of that money is forgivable. We've been giving a lot of advice and counsel to clients on where to go for their P3 money and then and then what the forg forgivability aspects of it will be. The problem has been in the first round that you couldn't get the money. A lot of people can't get the money from national lenders especially. And so if you're on the phone and you couldn't get money the first time around, and you see in the news right now that maybe today they're going to do another 300 or $310 billion dollars, you would be right to think that it's gonna probably run out again in four or five or six or seven, 10 days. And uh, if you are with a lender that has you in a queue where you're sitting in a queue with a multiple electronic process, I'd advise you to go knock on the door if you have a relationship with a community bank or a regional bank that's gonna treat you with a little more 
you know, uh, personalization and has better experience handling the volume of SBA and the complexity of SBA financing. That's just uh, from what we've seen, that's, those are the people who are successful in getting the funding. Government checks are gonna provide an uptick for us. I think I talked to a couple of franchisees of Taco Bell who are friends of mine in the last week, and I heard a plus seven over last year, I heard a plus six, I heard a plus 13. One KFC franchisee was, that I talked to was, was flat over last year because of the, the, you know, the government checks are starting to kind of trickle in and it's having a nice impact on year over year sales. And so I'm a little encouraged about what I see there. I mean, clearly, clearly people are wanting to come out and go back to restaurants, at least on a drive-through basis. So that's, that's optimistic in a sense. We have pockets of optimism across the country. I think it's fantastic that, that, that you're seeing a discussion about reopening the economy and reopening our country. And, and I saw three Southern states, South Carolina, Georgia, and Tennessee talk about putting procedures in place by the end of this week. Let's hope it stays safe, but that is going to hopefully get some areas and some brands back into the fold to maybe maybe look more like a V-shape recovery for them in those areas instead of a long U or a Nike swoosh recovery, right? And the last thing we're seeing is dropping commodity costs and wage inflations. And I think that's gonna help profits over the long term. The price of a, of a pound of cheese gone from $1.70 to $1.07. Everyone's been watching what's happening to oil and corn and soybeans. I mean, it's amazing how how uh, oil has dropped in the last day. So watch for, for dropping commodity costs, having, having a really positive impact, even in the short term, but certainly in the midterm for franchise P&Ls. The M&A market conditions, uh, you know, this is, a, this is kind of a bit of a busy slide. It's just meant to be directional. If you look at the slide from left to right, this is from December 2009 to December 2019. And you strip out some of the small categories like sub sandwich and then maybe also casual and family. What you're gonna look, see here is a, is a rising appreciation pretty significantly in valuations of franchise businesses from 09 to 2017, right? And then you see a flattening roughly from maybe you know, end of 2017, mid 2018 to, to today. And that's really what's been happening. You could probably layer in a lot of asset classes here, commercial real estate, maybe, you know, stock market, whatever it would be, but a lot of asset classes have happened this way. We've seen a huge appreciation in the value and the price of franchise assets in a sale. And they were historically high. It's the highest I've seen in my career. And it's largely kind of treaded water over the last 18 months or so. Starting uh, on, on March the 13th, which was really when we started feeling the major brunt of the changes in, in uh, COVID-19. You know, we had probably, and Bridal had like 15 to 20 deals that were active, and most of them have kind of gone on various stages of hold or elongation, right? We did have one 67-unit Moe's business sell. Uh, biggest Moe's franchisees, a private equity group, bought them out of New York, and, it, and you know, the deal closed the day before uh, on like March the 11th or 12th, and just a, you know, tough situation for the buyer, but our hopes that business will come back around. But I think what we're seeing in our business is most deals have been elongated, you know, by 90 to 120 days. And most sellers and buyers are kind of thinking about June 1st as kind of a, a time when they're looking at, at the market reopening and looking at their sales as hopefully uh, uh, rebounding. I do think that some of our deals, depending on the type of uh, deal it was and what amount of drive-through business there was, will have a, uh, will have a fairly, will have a fairly significant impact and may not make it right now uh, to, to a closing. But, but I think Mike and Reed could probably tell you the some, same thing about some of their real estate listings. We did have one business, it was a Papa John's business of decent scale on the market in the middle of the COVID-19 crisis. I don't know that this makes a real big uh, you know, data point for you, but 
we would typically expect to see seven to 10 offers on a business like that. And we had two. So the offers, the number of offers were down by 70% in this process just finished about a week and a half ago, but the drop in pricing was only five to 10%. And I think, I think that's telling, right? So there are buyers still in the marketplace and they will pay fair prices, especially as we have a reordering and the family offices and private equity groups tell me, hey, I'm interested now in pizza. I'm interested in Sonic. I'm interested in these brands that don't have a big footprint or these brands that don't have a big exposure to the dining room. Um, you're gonna see less people coming to the table to buy them, but when liquidity opens up, I think you're gonna see the ones that come to the table may be the most serious. And then we're recommending to our clients that they pause new clients, that we pause until June 1st to, before we start reassessing when a good time to come to the market is. If we're working with you right now, we'll clearly, we're continuing to work with you as you're working through the crisis. And, um, and, and maybe the, the, the process of due diligence, the process of asset purchase agreement negotiations, those kinds of things have been delayed a little bit, understandably. So here's the base case for a timeline from, from my perspective. Again, I'm just a, a hillbilly from Kentucky, but I've happened to be doing this a long time. I mean, my, my base case is this, this thing looks like a U recovery, right? Not a V, not a swoosh, but kind of a U. Um, and in this particular case, if you look left to right at this graph, I mean, at this chart, I'd say virtually no new and new M virtually no new M and A activity in the next couple of months. I think that's not going to be a surprise to anybody. If you come down to July through September, uh, loan modifications are going to be a big part of what you're going to see primarily initially in the future. It is true that 100% of franchisees who have a loan are going to have to have some sort of modification to their loan. Getting P&I deferrals for 60 or 90 days or going interest only is not going to be a permanent solution for you. And when you come out of this, you're going to have leverage that's just sometimes double and triple what it was in arrears. So it, all loans are going to need to be modified. That process is probably going to happen this summer and this fall. You're going to start seeing the first wave of store closures. When we go into August through October, I think you'll see an initial wave of bankruptcies and brands that really have been teetering, you know, and you know these brands, you haven't eaten there in a couple of years, but you see some of their advertisements on TV and such. Those franchisees, uh, you know, will probably, uh, some of them enter bankruptcy. And then I, I think you're, you'll see some over leveraged franchisees enter bankruptcy as well, maybe even in healthy brands. The reduction in store count will continue through this time, time frame, but I think that there's some positivity here and there will be two types of initial upticks of M&A that'll start happening probably in the August through October timeframe. Again, it's anyone's guess, but this is what I think the base case tells us. The first thing is I get a lot of phone calls today from people who are, you know, older guys, you call up and say, Rick, I, I should have sold a year, year and a half ago. And when this thing gets back to normal and we can look at our trailing 12 P&Ls and adjust for this coronavirus, hopefully as some sort of a speed bump, um, I'm going to sell, even if the price is a, a little bit lower. And I've got a great business, and I'm, I'm, I'm tired of staying up till 3 in the morning looking at the ceiling over the last month and a half. So I think you're going to see a little bit of that at first, and you're going to see a little bit of supply and demand. So some of those good buyer, sellers that come out with great businesses, there's going to be very little supply, but there will be some demand. And so those businesses may trade at decent prices if we have liquidity in the market, which we don't, which we don't know that we have right now. We're also going to see during that time frame, I think, a bunch of distressed deals kind of gradually start coming to the market. In November through January, my hope is that if you're, you're a non-casual dining chain, you're going to be back to pre-coronavirus sales levels. Maybe this happens sooner. In, the, in, the, in an optimistic case, maybe this happens in the next several months. Uh, in February or March, I think when people get their year in P&Ls and banks and franchisors look at that, they're 
probably will necess ne necessarily be a, a new wave of bankruptcies. But under the base prediction, and assuming we don't have a crappy political climate, and we're not in a horrific recession, and geopolitical problems aren't persisting, trade wars aren't terrible, you know, blah, 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 all these kind of caveats. I think April, May of next year, once we have close to a year past the, past the COVID crisis, I think we could see an M&A boom that would be massive. I mean, I'm talking massive. You're gonna have franchisees who are gonna have P&Ls that will have recovered, and you're gonna have hopefully commodity costs and easing wage pressures. That's if we can get our employees back to work off of sick leave and unemployment. Um, which is another issue, but we're going to have good looking P&Ls and I think the M&A boom will be there and it'll be strong and furious. And the other thing is I would give you comfort having been through two of these before many of you know this, but in a, in a deep recession, QSR especially typically does really, really well unless gas prices spike. That's the biggest corollary factor or correlation. And in this case, as you've seen, we might be below a dollar a gallon here in the next couple of weeks or months. So that's not a real worry at the moment. I think this is maybe my last slide until I turn it over, but I, I would just point out a couple of things. A, segment leaders will prosper due to less competition. Store closures, if they hit 10%, you're gonna see a lot of people close restaurants and the, and the cream will rise to the, to the top. It always does, the strong will get stronger. And B, the brands with high premise sales will recover sooner. Obviously, that's, a, that's an obvious comment. You look over to the right and you see some of the brands. These are just directional numbers, they're not meant to be exact, but you can see the brands have as an example, really high off-premise and then really low off-premise. And that's gonna, that's gonna be a, a, a challenge there for the ones that are low. EBITDA multiples in the base case would probably drop, in my view, somewhere between a quarter of a turn to one turn of EBITDA. But I think that's really devil's in the details. It is possible and true that a Sonic business, as an example, or a Papa John's business, might actually increase an EBITDA multiple as we have some sort of a reordering of what buyers want to buy. I get these phone calls now from family offices saying we want to get into pizza. We want to, you know, like I've been telling you, um, you know, in the, in the Taco Bell brand, you have 30 buyers for every seller. So it's unlikely you're going to see a massive EBITDA multiple drop there either, especially when uh, liquidity comes back to the market. But in some of the brands like the casual dining brands and maybe some of the languishing QSR brands, you may see a massive EBITDA, uh, uh, you know, repricing as an EBITDA multiple. Fewer lenders will emerge. We probably had 25 or 30 of them specializing in the franchise business prior to this. Four or five had come out of the business or had paused making new loans. Credit will be squeezed some, and I do think you're going to see less, less, uh, less lenders than before. And so lease adjusted leverage, which is a key metric used to recap a business and buy businesses, will drop. And what that means is, um, is people are going to have to likely put, investors are going to have to put more equity into a deal. Uh, the other thing, though, is we, we have the tenure at like 0.5% today, which is the lowest, I, I don't know, it might be the lowest in 100 years, who knows, but it's the lowest I've ever seen, and, uh, and so borrowing costs are really low to maybe combat the lease-adjusted leverage issue. In, in item F, you've got normalizing P&Ls, so, you know, there are two ways your business is valued, right? I mean, two things that really affect it. Number one is going to be what your EBITDA is, and the other is what the EBITDA multiple is, and one multiplies the other and you get to evaluation. So the multiple is one, the one thing, but what is the EBITDA that we are going to use for evaluation purposes? And the quicker the recovery, the more we're going to be able to normalize all of it or most of it as a speed bump in arrears, right, and just normalize the P&Ls. Um, I was talking with a, um, with a lender who was saying just preliminarily that they thought they would take for purposes of financing a transaction, they would look at 2000, right now they would look at 2019 full year P&Ls and make like a five to 7% sales discount. 
they're making a loan. That was an interesting, interesting comment from this particular lender. Um, more to come on that. We should expect the M&A processes to take 60 to 90 additional days. I would say, you know, when you're dealing with lenders that are going to be kind of haywire and you're dealing with landlords and you're dealing with franchisors, it'll just take longer. Our average deal has been averaging five and a half to six months on average. I think just error outs and seller financing will become in vogue again. So watch out for that. That happened in the last two recessions for a buyer and seller to kind of come together on a price. There have to, you know, sometimes in the middle, you have to be creative. And the last thing I would say in I is that store closures are going to help profitability. A lot of franchisees, some of you are 200 unit franchisees on the phone, and I bet you're already looking at closing 10 to 15 to 20 of your stores, right? The ones that are at the bottom of the pecking order and aren't doing well. So that is going to help profitability and remodels and development obliga obligations are going to be slowed or wash away. I think that's a positive for the industry too. Um, so, so uh, you know, some of these development obligations have been crazy over the years. So so uh, that's going to help, I think, uh, the, the capital outlay in the business going forward. So watch that with your franchisors. And then with that, I'm going to hand it over to these guys, uh, uh, Mike and Reed. You guys fire away. Thanks so much. Great. Thank you, Rick. So leading up to, you know, call it pre-COVID, we had a real estate market that was firing on all cylinders. Um, I'll kind of break it up into to three distinct buckets, um, first being, portfolio sale leaseback market. So, you know, call it 10 plus properties where you're either selling simultaneously to an acquisition or, you know, you're selling existing real estate to create liquidity. Um, the other being, you know, your private market one-off individual sale leaseback typically kind of runs along a development price process in which you're selling, you know, onesies, twosies into the private market to 1031 exchange buyers. And then the third being the structured finance market where um, we're getting highly levered interest only debt secured by a PropCo entity. Um, and we'll touch on some, some specific examples in later slides, but ultimately um, we started noticing this change really in mid-March around the same time everyone else did. And, you know, like, much like the M&A market, you know, professional buyers and, and private buyers all turned to their existing portfolio to figure out how deep this crisis was and what the direct impact was and really, you know, how, how much rent were they going to get come the, come the first of the month. Um, and as far as, you know, active deals, we had quite a few um, larger M&A deals in process right in the middle of, of COVID-19. And uh, we've seen, you know, quite a few retrades, and we'll touch on this later, rent guarantees, escrow holdbacks, prepaid rents are becoming almost a daily conversation on, on our larger portfolios. And, and same even in the, in the individual markets with private buyers, their lenders are kind of forcing the, forcing the buyer's hand into getting some of these things as well. Um, from a timing perspective, it, it, we also mimic that of, of Rick's business and what's been transpiring in M&A. Uh, typically, you know, right in mid-March, everybody started saying, we need 30 days. And then really two weeks later, or even a week later, they said, we're going to need 90 days. You know, it was this kind of like gradual progression of like figuring out how bad this actually was. And here we are today looking at, you know, 22 million unemployment. And it's just unbelievable what's transpired in the last 45 days. So things are pushed off. Lenders are pushing off. Buyers are pushing off um, for the vast majority of transactions we're working on with a select handful of, of, of tenants that 
are actually faring relatively well and, and can still transact in this market. Uh, when it comes to actually marketing properties, whether you're, you're, you're marketing a portfolio or you're marketing a one-off, it's much the same in that you need to get out uh, ahead of people's concerns by way of addressing this, this period of time and trying to say, you know, things like we'll hold back money has become a, a part of the conversation. As, as brokers and, and representing our clients, we want to we take one thing off the table and that's the guaranteed stream of income. And we say to our sellers, let's put up three months of, of escrow money so that we can get that five cap as opposed to them coming back and wanting a six cap. So we, we focused our, our time and efforts on, on making sure that the buyers feel comfortable that they are in fact going to get their rent during this crisis. Um, Rick, if you could just go to the, the next, next slide. And by the way, I'm getting a text, by the way, that just came in that said the one franchisee uh, is, is up, was up 22% last week in sales. Pretty fantastic, right? So um, yeah, yeah we, they're in the Southeast. Been, wow. Yeah. We've been hearing the same thing, especially like, you know, in the, in the pizza, the pizza world, I, I heard the same thing on Sonic. It's very interesting to see um, some of these groups really benefiting. Um, I'll tell you, Reed, you can go ahead and, and, and tackle this slide. Sure. So, you know, let's get into how COVID-19 has affected real estate valuations and what we've been seeing specifically in the real estate market. So uh, we'll start by talking about what's happened to cap rates. Leading into the crisis, as Mike mentioned, we were having experiencing very high demand. Pricing was at the top and it has been for the last couple of years. Velocity was very strong and most opportunities you're sourcing multiple offers and and getting the best terms possible for the seller. So it had been business as usual and cap rates were stable. Uh, today, there has been a pullback in demand and velocity, uh, but cap rates, we haven't seen them slide significantly for most assets. Um, that pullback in demand, however, has started a trend of offer terms that have been slightly in the buyer's favor. Um, and perhaps there have been a small haircut in pricing depending on the fundamentals of the lease terms and the real estate for the offering. Mm -hmm. Buyers today seem hyper-focused on the security of the investment. Uh, they've started asking for specific terms that are going to provide them with additional security, like rent guarantees or escrow holdbacks from the seller. Um, and we're also seeing them ask for additional time for due diligence and for closing, um, in part because of borrowing timeframes. Uh, so leading into the crisis, interest rates were at historic lows. In, in early March, there was a significant push of landlords to refinance their existing loans so that they could capitalize on those historically low interest rates. Uh, many borrowers were able to get that in in time and are now enjoying those rates. But then as April approached, concerns started growing amongst the real estate community surrounding the, the rent deferrals and requests for rent abatements and how that was going to affect mortgage payments. So many of the lenders turned inwards towards their own portfolios of loans and started providing solutions to existing clients uh, surrounding rent being deferred on, on many commercial assets. Mm -hmm. uh, so at, at the end of March, most lenders ended up putting a halt on new loan activity and started saying that they were not going to be issuing new loan commitments for 60 to 90 days or more as we understood how the crisis was going to unfold. So today, that's, that dynamic is largely the same. Uh, lenders have started to scramble to work with their clients on some of the government stimulus programs like PPP and are still really dealing with the consequences of those rent deferrals and abatements with their existing clients. So new loan activity is largely at a halt. Um, that, those rent deferrals and the shakiness with restaurants, 
has also drawn a little bit of an attention uh, on buyers to certain fundamentals of real estate and has caused a little bit of a flight to quality uh, in some cases. So um, re regarding geography, demand does seem to have been impacted more in d difficult geographies or smaller geographies. And, you know, we typically see that when the market is shaky, there will be a flight to quality. And what, where we're seeing buyers turn is those deals where there's strong underlying real estate, there's a large franchisee credit that's backing the lease. Um, they're turning more towards those household name brands rather than more regional concepts. And then they're looking for really sound real estate fundamentals like row, low, low rent per square foot. So, you know, if, if today you're selling, say, a, a Taco Bell in Phoenix, you probably haven't experienced much of a change in demand on the, the real estate sale. You're probably still getting multiple offers and, and pricing and terms probably haven't changed much. But if you're selling a, a smaller concept in a secondary or tertiary market, you may be getting a little bit less interest and less buyers at the table today. And you're probably seeing a little bit of a delta in pricing as well. And that segues kind of into changes that we've seen in buyers underwriting. So, you know, they've, they've become hyper-focused on the security of investment and what's come along with that is buyers are becoming very focused on what market rent is and market price per square foot and we're having buyers come to us and ask for comps to show that you know the rent and the price per square foot that we're marketing at are in line with market and that you know in the event of a downturn their restaurant's not paying twice market rent and is not going to be able to pay the same run afterwards so um, you know, we're, we're having a lot of buyers ask for those types of comps and then also ask for financials and sales performance to see kind of how restaurants have performed the last couple of weeks. Um, 1031 buyers and, and repricing. Uh, so it, it's important to note that 1031 has been extended to July 15th. So 1031 buyers have become a little more patient. They have three months to identify and uh, that's caused them to really kind of focus on good real estate and, and look for a deal. Um, I, I think that that trend will continue, but they'll start to feel the pressure a little more because there hasn't been as many properties hitting the market and all of the good deals should dry up soon. So I, I think that they'll get more motivated as time goes on. And then, um, you know, the REITs, some of the REITs have pulled back or are even out of the market because they're turning towards their existing portfolios or uh, maybe their stock price has taken a significant hit. So they've kind of, their cost of capital has risen and they've pulled out a little bit. Um, but other REITs are filling the gap in the market and pricing has largely remained the same in the REIT market, although we're, we're getting a little bit more buyer friendly terms, which Mike will touch on soon. We'll, we'll, we'll spin to the next couple of slides, if that's okay, you guys, we've got maybe seven or eight minutes to go to, to, to hit it. I'll just say as, as, uh, as, as I'm seeing this, I'm seeing text messages and things come in pretty cool, right? Like one guy's telling me he's a Arby's franchisee, he's up over 20%. Two KFC franchisees are up between 20 and 30%. Sonic franchisee is up 22% last week. I'm hearing too that we are rolling over Easter. This year, no Easter. Last year, Easter. So um, there's some impact there. But uh, but but sorry to to, to kind of get in your way there. But but just some just some actually some pretty some pretty sweet news, right? It's awesome. That's, awesome. that's what we all want. It's awesome. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, go for it. So I want to touch on kind of the two main buckets that you look at from a sale leaseback perspective, um, i.e. The, the portfolio market, which is on the left, and the private market, which is on the right. Um, you know, what we're seeing in general on the portfolio side is anywhere between a 25 to 75 basis point increase to cap rate with an extreme focus on making sure that a tenant's going to be able to pay their rent for the next year. 
or for the remainder of the year has really been the most common discussion we've been having. So they're doing that by way of escrow holdbacks, prepaid rent, rent guarantees, you name it. You know, we've heard all of it from the institutional buyer pool. And, and, and it's not just REITs that can be private. I've seen a lot of private equity firms and family offices step in and kind of pick up a lot of the demand that's been diminished by the institutional capital. So, you know, we've been negotiating constantly on, on these terms. Uh, the professional buyer pools turn their focus to extreme amounts of liquidity and, and ex extreme focus on liquidity and credit. So that's become ever so more, more important in today's conversation. Um, uh, and a real deal example that we were working on pre-COVID that was an escrow, the buyer hadn't removed contingencies, a 52 unit Burger King business, $6.6 million of EBITDA, 24 fee properties, which is our part of the equation. Um, you know, pre-sale lease back, we were at a 615 cap uh, with one and a quarter percent annual increases on a, under a master lease. A pretty market, right? Burger Kings are anywhere between a six to a 635 cap as far as the portfolio market. So 10 plus properties. They came back, they retraded us to a 675 cap. We said, okay, you know, we'll see you later. We feel we had already touched base with all the buyers in the market and felt good that we could at least execute it as a 650. We went back to market and that same buyer ended up coming back non-refundable and closing with no rent guarantee at a 635 cap rate. Now that is, is a better portion of the examples. There's been plenty of examples of deals dying um, as a result of a, of, of a blanket retrade by a buyer, but I'm um, happy to give more examples and follow up if people have questions brand specifically, because each brand is definitely being treated very differently. Um, going off into the, the, the private market, the sale spec market, um, you're looking at pricing changes between 10 to 35 basis points for the most part. Again, touching on what Reed said, a flight to quality where buyers and lenders are really looking at underlying real estate and rent per foot. There's been an extreme focus on rent per foot. As soon as it gets over that really $60 per foot mark, you start seeing leverage come down, which affects the buyer's ability to seek leverage and, and, and pay a lower cap rate. Quick example, 65 unit Taco Bell business. They're building one off Taco Bells. Um, we've been selling them between a 475 to a 515 cap rate, had one under contract. They retraded us 35 basis points. We ended up getting it done at that price, but gave them a 50% rent concession to our client for the, the three months following the closing. So ultimately still pretty good execution uh, given, given the existing scenario. Yeah, yeah. I'm just uh, also, thanks, thanks, Mike. I'm just kind of looking at some of the comments too, just, just throwing them in here as we talk, but we had a, a franchisee sharing uh, that they're up 19 last week. A Wendy's franchisee saying they're down 12 to 15%. You know, uh, yeah, I don't know if that's last week or just now. We've got uh, some, some folks talking about distress and, you know, in certain areas of the country as well. So it seems like it's all over the board, but um, I just wanted to share that. Yeah, I know we have another slide here, so go for it. Yeah, um, and, and, and this is really the structured financing market, which maybe not everyone's in tune with, but, but part of the reason, you know, I'd say one of the main reasons why multiple have been supported to the extent that they have been is because of the ability to finance and sell real estate. You know, real estate's become such a huge part of the M&A process. And, you know, pre-COVID, we were obtaining 65, depending on the brand and the quality and the leverage on Opco, we were generating between 65 to 75% of appraised value. And now keep in mind, appraised value is dictated by because you would own the business and, and the real estate and separate entities. You can kind of control those metrics and increase leverage drastically. So we, 
know, we did a lot of transactions in which we got a hundred, you know, hundred percent, hundred and ten percent. There's people on this call. We've got hundred and ten percent leverage where they use that money for Ofco in an acquisition. Four and a half to five and a half percent interest only, only secured by Propco, so it doesn't affect Ofco leverage. Two to three year term, no prepayment penalties. You're basically buying you know, hundred Taco Bells and then you're selling them off individually, and that's that's what you use this structured financing for. This market has really shut down. It's one of the few, not one of the few, but one of the main markets that's been extremely negatively impacted by this situation. And now lenders for a call it B brand are looking at 50% leverage and things of that nature. Um, you know, they're also asking for time. You know, nobody, anybody that was in the midst of a transaction lender wise, really wasn't at the tail end of it is asking for a minimum of 60 days and typically more like 90 to 120. So, um, you know, for the right brand, the right sponsor, the right deal structure, there's still 65% of appraised value out there. In fact, we're working on a deal right now with, with an, with a top tier brand where there's only 50% leverage on Opco and everything's kind of like, and the business is only off by 7% and we are obtaining excellent financing in, in, in that realm. But for the most part, this is changing the decisions that are being made on real estate. So it's very important, you know, if you have real estate on the books or if you're, you're buying a business or if you're selling a business, you need to reevaluate what you have today because it's, it is different. Things have changed. You need to reallocate rents and change the way in which you're underwriting your, port, your real estate portfolio. So um, that's it for this slide. Yeah, that's great. I think that's fantastic. I think we're, I'm just looking at the time guys and we're, you know, we got about maybe 15, 20 minutes left, but instead of maybe doing the Q of A, I think we'll just kind of keep on going. Does that sound okay? And, and we'll yeah. try to address some of the questions that have been sent to us. So, I mean, I'll just uh, thank you so much for your all's thoughts. I mean, I, uh, it, they resonate with me and, uh, and, and I'm just going to just make a quick comment on the thoughts on the turnaround. In the base case, I talked about it. From, a, from the franchise side of the business. And someone came in saying, if my comments are just for the food business, or they also are with fitness or car care or with, you know, healthcare or beauty care businesses. And, you know, I just say kind of broadly speaking, my comments fit all of, all of the franchise businesses. I mean, that's a broad comment. I think the fitness space particularly has got, has had a lot of leverage and a lot of high multiples in the space and has had a lot of positivity over the years, over the last few years, particularly. And we're going to, we're going to see what, happens from a revenue perspective when everyone gets back out and how the fitness space is affected. I'm not too sure I have a good answer for what will happen with the revenue recovery in those concepts. But my comments do really pertain largely to franchise businesses as a whole and not just food franchises. The base case, I think, though, is, uh, is a U-shaped recovery, right? Um, the, the, uh, the best case is a V, and then I said the worst case is kind of a maybe a, a swoosh, an inverted swoosh maybe. I mean, there is a worst case scenario here and a worst case scenario could be two or three years of no credit. And, uh, you, you know, and, and so, but, but I don't think that's, I don't think that's what's going to happen. I would point you to your staffing levels, your AUVs, your profitability, your franchisor relationship, which you should kind of reinvest in and your lender as areas of concern and, and areas that you need to be on top of as a franchisee bringing back and training employees is going to be a challenge. I mean, it's okay right now as I drive through the McDonald's drive through and wait 10 minutes to get my food. I understand. But what's going to happen is the best companies when we open back up are going to have, going to be treating customers better than that. And when they treat customers better than that, and you can go through with a three minute drive through and people are friendly and giving you good customer service and great product, you are going to win. 
and you're in, you know, the 10 minute drive through isn't going to cut it anymore. So uh, bringing back and training your employees is going to be a big, it's going to be a big uh, challenge. You know, will the staffing, how will we staff the pent up demand that comes out of this, especially on the QSR side? Will better hiring markets uh, present themselves once we get past the sick leave and, uh, and the unemployment uh, government stuff? Will there be less wage pressure going forward? And hey, maybe some of these states might relinquish some of their stronghold on minimum wage increases. We'll have to see how the political situation kind of happens. And then we talk about the commodity cost favorability being a big part of these consumers' businesses, or pardon me, of your franchisees' businesses that I think is going to maybe offset some moderate sales declines. And, and if sales get back to pre-coronavirus levels, may actually produce a better looking P&L. We talked about the need for loan modifications in this next phase. And again, better operators are going to excel and tighten the ship. I, I think that will happen. And then um, let me see, let me go forward one more slide. This is the last slide before we take questions, but we're going to see new brand winners emerge. I mean, the restaurant business has been kind of a slow changing industry, right? And so we've started to see ghost kitchens pop up and delivery being more of a staple in the industry and uh, new types of food, different footprints of businesses. And I think new brand winners are going to emerge. So watch out for the innovation and the American entrepreneurship spirit, right? I mean, that's what started franchising all these years ago and it'll continue to evolve and uh, in the future and produce new brand winners. Best brands will get even better, no doubt about that. Restaurant closures were badly needed as a result of overdevelopment. So maybe that will have a positive five or 6% sales impact on some of the best brands that are sitting next door to several franchises that might close. Independence, fast casuals and casual dinings will be the general losers, unfortunately, I think. And uh, probably in an outsized capacity, we could see wholesale brands not make it uh, clearly over the next six to 12 months. I think, and Mike and Reed look at me and probably think I'm crazy, but I think restaurant real estate becomes both much more important but also less important. And you're like, Rick, what in the heck does that mean? I mean, clearly the value of being at Maine and Maine from a drive-through perspective is gonna be there and be there more than it ever was as drive-through business and delivery business is more, and carry-out business is more, is more of a big deal. But I would also say that, that uh, as a lot of these clients and friends of mine have QSR restaurants that are big old behemoths on an acre and a half of land with huge dining rooms and they're only pushing 15% of their business through that dining room. What does that tell you? that tells you that maybe you only need three quarters of an acre of land and you only need 10 you know, places to sit. Maybe we come out of this and Americans make a permanent change. I mean, we, we can't even remember what we ate for breakfast this morning, so I don't know if that'll happen, but, but, but it is possible that we'll make a permanent change. We won't eat in at QSR restaurants or at casual dining restaurants as much, even a year or two years out of this. I, I think that's a, I think in, for that perspective, maybe restaurant real estate becomes maybe different. I don't know that it, and, it's and, and to add, and to add to that, Rick, you know, you have another component of this is that, you know, you're really talking about the single tenant net lease market, right? We've, we focus much of our time on, on restaurants, but as a whole, there's so many retail bankruptcies, so many less tenants that a buyer, a private buyer, especially, and even an institutional buyer will look at and say, I'm comfortable with this. And this is going to be around in 10 years. So the, the, the supply is shrinking which makes restaurants more competitive just by nature, you know, take out what's happening right now. That's, that's already been transpiring for years. So that, that's another component that will add to the value of real estate. Not to say that the value is going up, but it's helping combat some of the, the negatives that are happening on really the credit side. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a good point. It's a really nice point. You know, and, and uh, jumping yeah, jumping back to the list, I guess I would just say that, you know, there are, there are several brands, and those of you on the call probably know the brands that are like this. Maybe you operate in these brands, but there are several brands where we're previously unattractive, right? I mean, it, just from this standpoint, you buy 20 restaurants and you got to sign up for a 50-unit development obligation, and you can't close any of your restaurants because even if they're negative $100,000 in EBITDA, you can't close them or we're going to sue you, the franchisor says, or something like this, right? So those types of conversations are going to loosen. The franchisors, especially the ones that are publicly traded and have, uh, and have like, uh, they're going to have the ear of the shareholders and they're going to have cover now to say, well, golly gee, we have, we, we have the coronavirus here and we're, we can't help it that we're having to ease on the development requirements that we previously promised to the street. And we're going to have 500 more closers in our brand than we said to you earlier. You know, so it provides a little bit of cover in that way. And I think that's going to bring people back to brands that maybe were a little bit too big for the britches, actually. You know what I mean? And I, I mean, I don't know how else to say it as a Kentucky boy, but some of these brands have thought they were too cool. And, and, uh, and so they're going to have to be forced to be more reasonable on the franchisor side. I mean, and then I think we're going to have pockets of success coming out of this, but we will see an increase in, you know, workouts and bankruptcies as we go through it. Um, I, I, as we, I want to take some questions, I guess now, and I, I don't know if you guys can see this on the screen. Can, Mike, can you guys see this on the screen as I, as I kind of pull up some of these questions? Maybe you can't. I, I've got the, the webinar chat up. I okay, can see. Yeah. What, here's one, thoughts on the future of buffets, Golden Corral, et cetera. This is one question I, I'm probably best uh, suited to answer this one. I, I would say, you know, buffets bother me. Uh, they, they, they just bother me uh, coming out of this crisis. I, I, I hate to say it. Uh, I think it's a I think it's a format that's that's highly likely to be unattractive to the family office and private equity world going forward because a lot of the people that manage those funds in those companies are young 30s and those types of folks really don't eat at buffets anyway and I think coming out of this they're going to fall out of favor that'd be my that'd be my short short answer uh, of course if you have a profitable business that's a buffet based business and it's really good and it's in a great geography, then I would punt on my comment there. Um, let's see. Uh, we had a couple. We had one question that came in that was. I've got one. Uh, I've got one here. Oh, there we go. Oh, I got some feedback yeah. there. That's weird. Um, regarding private lenders entering the structured financing space, as I was talking about, we have seen a little bit of that. Um, we actually, uh, about four years ago, there was, there was two lenders operating in this highly levered real estate structured financing space. And our capital markets team went out and actually now there's, there's about 20 and we were a part of kind of opening it up to new lenders. And so we're in the process of doing that again. And we are seeing a couple groups have come in and have issued some term sheets on deals that were not around frankly, or as competitive uh, a few months ago. So that is happening. Uh, it's, it's been more private equity than anything but there are some groups coming in to start filling the space. Um, it just depends on what it is and the size. Size becomes a bigger deal when dealing with the private lending space. But that's a great question. Oh, I see some great questions here, man. I could talk for hours on this stuff. You guys who know me know this. So I'm just looking at these. I'm like, ah. Oh. So uh, here's one. Thoughts on Mod Pizza specifically, okay? I, I, you know, uh, I'll give you my thoughts on Mod Pizza. Um, you know, I mean, my pizza fits into a category of, uh, of, of fast casual. I didn't, I don't like fast casual in general um, because I, if anyone could walk into a fast casual location and count the number of employees in the back of the house, 
and see that there's way more employees than, than a QSR establishment, right? The other thing I don't like about it is the high food costs and the incredibly high leases at strip center locations that they're paying to be in those locations. So uh, a lot of my friends and clients are big franchisees who have small, casual, fast, casual businesses. And those fast, casual businesses are being protected by their larger businesses. And people don't really know how poorly some of these fast, casual businesses are performing. Not to mention the type of customer that they're appealing to are a fickle customer in general. So I'm not going to make a comment specifically to Mod on that, but I would just say Mod fits into a, a bucket of fast, casual businesses that I think are going to be in trouble. And I think they're going to be in a lot of trouble. I think you're going to see QSR tearing, um, just tearing and ripping revenues from them going forward, unfortunately. Okay, do I see franchisors stepping in and owning stores again? Wow, Would, wouldn't that be crazy? I mean, we've got all these asset light franchisors now. I mean, I guess Arby's isn't, there are some that aren't, but most of them are. Um, I mean, you've got a lot of franchise, you've got a lot of franchisors who have five and six and seven, eight, 900 unit franchisees. And there's one in the pizza space that obviously isn't performing really well right now. So what will happen there? I, I think, I mean, I, I think I would say this, my, I haven't thought about this a whole lot, but my comment would be this, and franchisors are going to protect the brand. You know, so the first thing they're going to do is, is if there's massive distress, but I think it, it, generally speaking, they'll try to give the franchisee concessions that would be concessions they wouldn't give to anybody else in the franchise system to try to keep those locations and in, in those geographies open. And then if, if, if they think the franchisee is a, is a strong performer, if that can't happen, I think the franchisors are largely thinking last resort for sure. But I have seen franchisors step in like Pizza Hut in 2009 and 2010. They stepped in in the Midwest on several transactions that I was working on that were in the bankruptcy court that they ended up taking restaurants back, operating them, doing the remodeling, renegotiating the leases, taking them from dine-in to the drive-through, you know, or pardon me, uh, carry-out assets, Delco assets, and then refranchising them when we got out of a recession. So I think that's possible. Sure, I think it's possible. And I think you're going to see it if it happens in the brands that have been struggling for same-store sales performance over the last several years. Um, that's that's a, a question. How about, how about this? We had one on... Um, should you sell now or wait for a year until your EBITDA improves? Ooh, that's a good one. I can take that. Do you guys want to maybe make a comment on that from the real estate side first? Anything, should you sell now or when should you sell if you're looking to sell your, your real estate? Do you wait? Do you, what do you do? It, it, part, part of the answer to that is you have to, it depends on what it is, um, which brand and the existing status of, of the business. You know, are you shut down? Or are you treading water? Are you bleeding? You know, some of those things. But if you have a business that you're able to operate and you've kicked off, pushed off some expenses and maybe revenues are off by 25, 35%, I would still argue that now today, right now, if you own real estate, it, it is the time to liquidate because things are only, I, I believe things are only going to go down from here. And there still are buyers willing to pay relatively similar pricing depending on what it is, the size of it, and the credit behind it. So it just depends. You know, I, I always kind of veer away from giving an, an all-encompassing statement because, you know, we have, we have clients right now with, with prime businesses that are doing well in which we're selling all the real estate. You know, they basically had build, been building up a portfolio and, and we're executing within, you know, 25, 35 basis points on a cap rate basis and um, and actually dialing back rent and that's that's a big part of what needs to transpire here 
is, is a rent allocation analysis. If you do own real estate, you know, the value of rent in, in different markets as Reed touched on earlier is drastically different. So you don't want to have necessarily, if you're going to sell a store, all this rent loaded up on a tertiary location when you could move more rent over to a more primary location and generate more proceeds. As long as, you know, rent coverage and cash flow in the business on a four wall EBITDA basis or EBITDA basis is commensurate to the business, you know, succeeding long-term. So there really needs to be a lot of analytical work done on the real estate side in order to really create a strategy that's going to make you most effective. But for the most part, I'd say, you know, six or seven out of 10 times, we are in fact executing a disposition process for groups that are um, do own or are developing real estate in, right now, because what's going to happen is you're going to see a ton of supply come online the same way you're going to see a bunch of businesses come online at the end of the year. Same thing's going to happen with real estate. A bunch of people are just saying they're not going to do anything. And I would avoid that and try to go now when supply is limited and there's still a decent amount of demand. Yeah, I think you and I feel the same way about that in a little bit. Like if you're, you know, I, I, I said it kind of the same way earlier. I mean, from a from an M&A standpoint, I mean, I don't, I don't know that I have a clear answer to the question because it is true that some of the brands are actually performing better on a sales basis uh, in, in the crisis. I mean, I, I don't want to be, I want to be sensitive to people who are really struggling out there who are listening to this. It is also true that people might be down 10% in sales, but their commodity costs are going to be incredible and they might have even EBITDA. It is true that maybe there'll be some reordering of brands and maybe some of the brands that weren't weren't trading is, is highly valued, uh, could, could bump up an EBITDA multiple. So waiting in those cases might not be a good idea. I mean, if you have a business like a Taco Bell business where there's a hundred buyers for every seller, I, I don't, you know, is it, I don't know that you're going to see a ton of, of, of change in the, in the market as soon as we have more liquidity, which, which, you know, who knows when, when, when that'll be, uh, you know, if you have a, if you have a business that's going to struggle, you may not have time to wait a year to sell. But for the rest of, if you're just a franchisee who, um, you know, is a, I, if you're just a franchisee out there that's not over leveraged, that you're not in one of these brands that just everyone wants to buy, I, I guess I would tell you this, look at the type of recovery we get. If we get a V-shaped recovery on the, on, the, on the franchise side, whatever type of business you own, your business particularly, if it comes back quickly, I as an M&A advisor can say to buyers and to lenders, that this is a speed bump in our, in our trailing 12-month P&Ls. And if it is, we can normalize a lot of it. Now, I mean, I, I, I don't have enough data right now to test that theory in the M&A market because the market's shut down. But I would say that this looks like something that's a hiccup in the past, much like a hurricane or, you know, something like that that might impact P&Ls for 30 or 60 days. But if we have a longer U-shaped recovery, it becomes much more difficult to do that. And I think the longer it takes to get back to the status quo, I think the more impactful, uh, the, you know, the, the, the drop in the business would be from a, from a valuation perspective in the near term. There's a, you know, do you want to go add a couple of more? I think it's almost, it's almost, we got a couple more minutes. Um, yeah. How about, you know, okay, here's one. I've had, I've had at least three or four family office private equity groups call me, like I said, on chicken and, and pizza specifically. Now, I know I do a lot of yum work, right? Our bridal does a lot of yum work, but, but uh, particularly chicken. And let me tell you, you know, the, the, the chicken space. So, so the comment is, what do you think about the, you know, the chicken space? And my, my comment back to you is I think that, that the buckets of chicken and, and chicken and sides has always traveled really well. It's very, it's very, uh, it's very appealing to eat that product after it's been delivered. You know, kind of unlike French fries, for example, which don't really hold as well for as long of a period of time as coleslaw would, right? 
So I think I think um, if we if we come out of a, a largely drive-through economy coming forward, and we have a lot of delivery and places like Uber Eats and Ghost Kitchens are kind of going, I would say that the chicken and chicken on the bone, which has been going through a kind of a casual nosedive for the last 15 years, may actually become a little bit more appealing to to people, to buyers, to to consumers. So I'm I'm positive on chicken. I really am. I think chicken is a place to be. How will Jersey Mike's pull through this? And then how will uh, Moe's pull through this? I guess I would say this, I've always kind of felt like the sandwich business was heavily competitive. I mean, if you go to any major city on our street corner in Louisville, Kentucky, you see every single sandwich chain right next to one another. There's no way all of them will make it. There's just no way all of them will make it. So I know personally a lot of friends who, who own uh, sub sandwich franchises that aren't doing as well. Do I, I, like, I like Jersey Mike's though. And I think uh, again, if you hang in there long enough and you provide great customer service to your to your um, to your customers and you have a great product that's differentiated, um, if if someone can say in 30 seconds or less, why do you like Jersey Mike's? And there's a really compelling reason. Like someone said to me, why do you like Taco Bell? I say it's a national brand. There's no national competitor in Mexican QSR. Um, they have incredible like a marketing genius, and they've got great new products that are constantly coming out that grab my attention. Okay, like that's a real easy and quick way I can say why I like Taco Bell. If I could do that for Moe's and if I could do that for Jersey Mike's, and I think I can, then my comment coming out is that they're going to struggle because they don't have drive throughs But when the recovery does come back, they're looking probably to take market share from others around them. I don't know. Some of you may disagree with me. I don't know. I, you know, I'm talking fast and just sharing my thoughts. What do you, what else you see out there? Yeah. There's a, a good one. Uh, what is your answer when the asset managers and sellers bring up the panic selling objection? I, I think what you mean, I think uh, what you're, you're talking about is, is the buyers thinking that maybe you're kind of just trying to sell real estate to try to raise as much capital as possible before, you know, a bankruptcy event or something of that nature. Um, you know, that just comes down to financial modeling and creating a, a clear path to profitability and weathering the storm. Um, and, and that's just preparation work. We work alongside your accountants to make sure that, that we're prepared for that out the gates. And, and, and it's also framing the conversation correctly. And, and, and everyone to some degree realizes that this is a cash crunch, right? So like it, we will tell the buyers that this is why we are selling real estate assets to create liquidity so that we can weather the storm. That, that's perfectly normal. It's, it's part of everyday conversation with the buyers of real estate here. Um, and, and, and doesn't have to be, but that's typically the framework. And at the end of the day, if, if the pricing's not there, we just don't move forward and we can look at financing or some other um, alternative route. I hope I answered your question. I'm seeing if I'm just gonna see if I think we've there. hit a, we've hit a, an hour. And so I think uh, we probably ought to, I'm just checking here. Uh, yep. da, 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 da. We On the dot. Who is this? Is somebody, somebody who's a, up, up a bunch. Good. You know, someone here who's, in the Burger King space, who's up a lot over last year. Uh, great on the West Coast, actually. So, you know, I mean, we got to, we want to be sensitive, of course, and, and to everyone and their personal circumstance. I personally, um, uh, you know, want to thank you guys for being a part of this. I know Reed and Mike would say the same thing. Our thoughts and prayers go out to your families and loved ones for safety. And let's hope for this darn thing turns around and let's get back out there, man, and, and make it happen. And, uh, 
many blessings to you. You know, just uh, follow. If, if your question wasn't answered, we'll do our best to, to reach out to you personally and answer. And we'll get a copy of the audio and of the presentation out to everybody who signed up for this for this uh, Zoom conference. And again, um, go to the website if you want to get our emails. And two weeks from now, we're going to be hitting it hard with business interruption insurance, which again, after COVID, uh, after P3 loans, I think is the next uh, shoe to drop. There's going to be there's going to be a lot of people who have uh, claims that that are going to get rejected. Um, and I think this is a this is going to be important for you. So many blessings and thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, thank you, everyone. Thank you, yeah, certainly. Everyone have a great week. Thank you for your time. Yeah, cool. Y'all be good. Thanks, Rick. See ya.